This is Sustainable-ish with me, Jen Gale, and it is great to have you here. Listen in each week and I hope I can brighten up your day and leave you feeling inspired and excited about the magnificent human being that you are and the power that you have to create a better world. You won't find any expectations of eco-warrior perfection here. There's no obligatory tree hugging. You won't be judged if you drive a car, wear leather shoes, or eat the odd pack of Haribo every now and then. I'll be sharing my own gems of wisdom for sustainable-ish living, and I also relentlessly scour the internet for people doing amazing things to tackle the big environmental issues that we're facing, and I hound them until they agree to come on and inspire us all with their fabulousness and the positive change that they're making. So sit back, listen in, and get ready to change the world one baby step at a time. Hello, hello. How are you doing? How is it going? How are you feeling as we enter the final frantic fortnight in the run-up to Christmas? I have an absolute cracker of an episode for you today, one which I ummed and ahed about whether to publish it now or to wait until the new year, but I decided, rightly or wrongly, to go with now, because this episode is all about shopping, or rather stopping shopping. And it feels like right now might be a time when we're all perhaps uber aware of just how much we're buying at the moment. And please know that the intention is not to make you feel guilty in the run up to Christmas, but just to start the conversation and the thought processes. So hashtag please don't hate me. (laughs) Now consumption has overtaken population as the number one driver of the climate and the ecological crises and has actually skyrocketed in just the last 20 years. Now, remember that the last, you know, 20 years ago isn't the 1980s like it is in my head. 20 years ago is the turn of the millennium, the the 2000s. So it doesn't feel like all that long ago, does it? And we're consuming more now than we ever have before and quicker than we ever have before. And it's having a really profound impact on the planet's health and on our own health, both physical and mental. So what would happen if we just stopped shopping? This is the question that's posed by environmental journalist J.B. McKinnon in his new book, The Day the World Stopped Shopping. And it's what J.B. and I dive into in this episode. Enjoy. Hello, J.B. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much. Uh, And you're in Vancouver in Canada, is that right? That's right. Out here on the West Coast. Can you um, introduce yourself to us? Sure. I'm JB McKinnon. I'm a journalist and author in Vancouver, Canada, and uh, I write a lot about environmental topics. So uh, is, have you always written about the environment and things, or was did you start off on something else? Yeah, it was It was never something that I'd, I've done exclusively, but uh, I mean, I, I still don't really call myself an environmental journalist, but really, I mean, the vast majority of things that I've written about have been oriented around the environment in one way or another. But that's a pretty big envelope since yeah. <laughs> the environment includes everything. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So your book, um, I'm going to hold it up, even though nobody else will be able to see it. Uh, the Day the World Stops Shopping. And this is what we're going to talk about today. When did this come out? 
May, I believe, uh, okay. a bit later in the UK, I think. Yeah, probably was a bit later <laughs> over here. And the tagline is how ending consumerism gives us a better life and a greener world. Like there's there's so much about this that I love. Um, I think I said to you when I when I sort of first emailed you, we spent a year buying nothing new and that was 2012-13. But I, I think we'll kind of dive into the book in a minute, but this is kind of a conversation people don't want to hear, is it? Like nobody really wants to be told to shop less. Yeah, I mean, it, it kind of is and it isn't, but I think everybody likes the idea that we can change the world without really changing anything. Yes. <laughs> and uh, unfortunately, yeah, I'm one of those people who's who's here to say that's that's probably not going to work. Uh, <laughs> but it's really weird, isn't it? Because I think because of the way the society that we live in, I find a lot of people will um, say, right, okay, I want to be a bit greener. What do I need to buy? Because it's kind of like we start a new job and we get a new outfit or we start a new hobby and we buy all the things. Okay, I want to be greener. What do I need to buy? I need the coffee cup, the tote bag, you know, all these things that Instagram's telling us we need. And actually, just need to buy less. <laughs> I say we just. That's right. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's not really surprising, I guess, that people respond that way because, oh. I mean, as you as you just put it, I mean, this is how we've learned to to, to do things. So if oh. we're making changes in our life, if we decide, well, I'm going to be more committed to physical fitness, uh, we know that that comes with a suite of goods and maybe services oh. and, and maybe even travels that, oh. you know, we need, that we need to make um, so that we can be a runner rather than just uh, throwing on an old pair of sneakers and running out yeah. the door. Uh, we, we're really convinced that this is how, well, this is really how we do so many things, right? From we anchor our identities oh. in consumption we mark life's high points and sometimes the low points with consumption mm. we mark all of our holidays with more and more consumption yeah this is this is this is what we know and um, it is challenging i suppose to well certainly it's a challenging message to come out mm. and say no no just less will do yeah <laughs> don't need any different don't need more just less yeah I, th I suppose another part of it is that for the past 20 years i mean what people have been hearing is that consumption is fine as long as you're doing green consumption. Mm. And I think that we've just, just in the last short while reached the point where more and more people are saying, well, haven't we been at this green consumption game for quite a while? And mm. where are the results? And the results are not there. Yeah. So the premise of the book, talk to us about that. Because I think you start off saying, you know, imagine imagine if we stopped shopping and then it sort of becomes like, imagine if we all cut consumption by 25%, is that right? And you sort of explore into that. How, how, where did the idea for the book come from? Is this something you've been thinking about for a while? Yeah, I think I've been like thinking about it for, for a very long time, probably going back to my childhood actually, oh. but more recently it's come from the realization that it didn't really matter what environmental topic I was writing about if I really broke it down to the root causes, then consumption would very oh. clearly be emerging as the main one of those. So, and I noticed that in, in, in environmental journalism, we're often writing about topics as though the causes were always on the production side. So, you know, oh. you look at deforestation, you say, well, the problem with deforestation is logging, oh. <laughs> you know, we got to stop logging so much, oh. but then it's, it's like, well, they're not cutting down those trees you know, for fun, fun yeah. they're, they're cutting them down to make products that people yeah. consume. And, um, that's true of, you know, every form of resource extraction. So as I, you know, thought through those things, I just thought, well, 
maybe it is time to actually talk about consumption itself as a problem again. We haven't really done that for about 20 or 25 years, I would say. And uh, I also realized that there are probably new things to say about consumption and consumerism. So come on then, scare us. You must have some, I mean, I love a stat. Do you know, and I I found a stat when I was um, writing my first book that said something like, uh, and I'm not sure it was just a UK or a European stat, that 60% of global emissions are a result of household consumption, which, you know, I was like, wow. But then you kind of flip that and it's quite empowering because you think, well, that 60% of global emissions are within our power to control without waiting for governments and businesses and all those kinds of things. But talk to us about, you know, when did consumption really start to, uh, I don't know, like it feels out of control now, mm-hmm. um, certainly to me, I don't know if it does to you, but, but when did it become this, it's, I guess it's excessive consumption, is it? It's consumption beyond our needs. When did that become a thing? When I first was sitting down to write the book, I mean, I thought it'd be a nice clean, it'd be nice and clean to just say like the world stops consuming, but then of course the world can't stop consuming entirely. I mean, we mm. eat and shelter ourselves and usually have to put some kind of clothing on our yeah. back to go outdoors. <laughs> um, we're just that kind of mammal. You know, I, I ended up settling on a, a, imagining a 25% reduction in consumption mm. at a global scale. And then there's questions about, well, how, how would that break down? I mean, obviously the wealthy consume a lot and the very poor consume mm. very little. So those are the kinds of things that I had to tease out a little bit in the writing of the book. Uh, but I mean, a 25% drop in consumption is a is a, a massive shock to the economic system as it stands today. So it's certainly not. Uh, in fact, that number was so shocking that some people that I really wanted to talk to for this book refused to entertain it wow. at the time, and uh, they were just like, "No, this is too far down the road of speculation. This will never happen." Um, at least one person said to me. And so why, you know, why entertain this? And then, of course, the pandemic rolled along and exactly that happened. And we did see drops of 25% or even more in, wow. in quite a number of countries, at least temporarily. Because when I first read that figure, 25%, I thought, I can probably do that. I can probably buy a quarter, I don't know whether a fewer or less clothes, um, I can probably buy a quarter less books, toys for the kids. Like, it felt doable but I guess you know we're are we talking about home energy uh petrol um food is is it across the board or is it I mean I think ultimately it would be it would be everything and I and I think the the really challenging thing is that you're right for a lot of people in wealthy countries in the west uh 25 percent would be you know if they organized their lives a little differently 25 percent wouldn't wouldn't be that big a hit yeah but the fact is that most wealthy consumers would actually need to cut their consumption by considerably more than that. Because we're talking about an average of 25%. So those people in developing countries that literally cannot reduce by a quarter. So we're probably looking at reducing by a half or more or whatever to get that average. Yeah. I mean, there's about half the world's population that uh, couldn't cut their consumption yeah, by 25% yeah. without really uh, carving away at their basic survival needs. And, and just, uh, and just then that there's the rest think, of us. God, how, <laughs> you know, how, how privileged am I to sit here and go, yeah, I could cut our consumption by 25% and not even really notice it. And God, mm-hmm. that's, that makes me feel really awful that I've just said that. And then there's, you know, like you say, there's people <laughs> who literally are completely living, you know, 
on the breadline and, and cannot pair things back any any further or already below where they where they need to be. Um, yeah, yeah. So this this idea of of reducing consumption, when you know the the message we get all the time is is you know we need to be constantly increasing GDP. How is is there a, an average figure for how much consumption increases year on year? Uh, there's no real average figure, I don't think. But I mean, it it basically tracks GDP growth. So you know, if uh, if you look at China, for example, it's had these enormous uh, leaps in oh. GDP over the last decade. A lot of that has come from the growth in consumption within China. I mean, oh. China has had incredible increases in household consumption. Um, so it, it tracks pretty steadily with that. But uh, as a general rule, I mean, it's just always going up. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it goes up almost universally. I mean, there's there are some products, for example, electronic devices, like digital devices, that we're buying a whole lot more of than we used to in the past. Mm. But that doesn't mean that we've that that like the sale of watches, for example, has declined. And mm. in a lot of countries, the sale of watches continues to increase. I mean, the rule with consumption is more, more, more <laughs> all the time <laughs> in every direction. Yeah. Um, I mean, and it it that's because we've created a system that's so dependent on it. And fashion as a, you know, to take that as its own thing. I mean, that has ramped up to, to me, it feels like fast fashion has always been around. Um, mm-hmm. But actually, you know, reading around this, I was fast fashion wasn't really a thing until sort of late 90s, 2000s. And, and, and this, you know, and fashion consumption has just gone through the roof, hasn't it in the last 20 years. And um, you know, I, I, there was a meme on um, social media the other day saying, oh, someone said 20 years ago, and I still think it, but you know, that was like 1970 something. And then realizing that was the like 2000s. And that's where <laughs> I'm at. I'm still like, no, that wasn't, you know, 20 years ago is a long time ago. But that's the year 2000, which doesn't feel that long ago. Yet, how we consumed then and how we consume now, we're consuming a lot more now. Oh, yeah. Between the year 2000 and 2020. I mean, if you just look at clothing, for example, it's up more than 60% wow. on average per person. And, and, I, and I think that number is probably outdated because fashion has been just extraordinary in this regard, because as I've been writing the book, it's been accelerating beyond my own descriptions of it. I mean, mm. I've, I just yesterday was speaking to a, a student journalist who's uh, you know, coming out of Generation Z and you know she's talking about these things uh, on TikTok and Instagram and so on, clothing hauls, right? Where Ooh, yeah, yeah, yeah. where influencers come out and they just they yeah. show the the hundred and fifty new clothing products they've purchased. Yeah. And you know she talked about how that their generation is really feeling a ton of pressure to keep up with fashion changes, literally on a daily basis. Um, I mean that's brand new from just. When I started writing this book, mm. that wasn't something that was happening, and now it's happening. So, yeah, the acceleration of fashion has just been just been extraordinary. We're recording this a sort of week or two after Black Friday, and there's a brand called Pretty Little Thing. I don't know if they um, cross the states, but they had a Black Friday sale where they were literally things were zero. You know, they were, they were free. They and and I think you were only allowed <laughs> one per per basket or something like that. But then the next day, this this uh, picture appeared on social media of somebody. You know, she'd had all her deliveries come and, and there's this um I don't, I don't, I'm so unfashionable I don't know but there's this iconic pretty little thing sort of pink bag or purple bag I think and literally the floor of her room was covered in these parcels and I just I I, I don't understand how someone could not find that obscene I, I <laughs> yeah I mean you really have to be 
you're not connecting very many dots right. <laughs> if you're looking at that and thinking that it makes perfect sense. But, yeah. but I mean, a lot of people are not connecting those dots because uh, particularly young people, because they are so focused on the creation of their identity and the maintenance of their, their status uh, amongst their peers. And this is the thing is that although the temptation is to, you know, of course, to be, you know, to be harshly critical of these people, mm -hmm. the root of it is the same as it has been forever. Uh, even since uh, Torstein Veblen came up with the term conspicuous consumption, I mean, he, he noted that it, it, that it isn't just a question of greed and covetousness, but a, a, a question of self-respect and the sense of our desire to maintain a dignified place with regard to our peers and with regard to society as a whole. So, you know, we see young people just feeling, feeling this intense pressure to, to maintain a fashionable position in society mm -hmm. and responding, you know, in this case to the prompts to buy dozens and dozens of goods and yeah. literally hundreds of articles of clothing a year. I mean, that's when I started writing this book, there, there weren't that many people doing that. And now yeah. it's not at all difficult to find young people buying those things in those kinds of numbers. And that's quite at odds with a lot of the other messages we're hearing about, you know, millennials and Gen Z being much more environmentally aware, you know, the idea that, you know, as, as a business, you need to have really strong environmental policies and things in order to be attracting these young people. And that, you know, we have the um, student strikes and all these kinds of things. And and if we got two very different sectors of, of people within the same generation or is there crossover or is, is it like you say, there's, there's just, they, they might have these values and ideals, but there's this big one of those sort of values action gaps. I, I don't really it seems, you know, from one extreme to the other, doesn't it? I, I pieced this together in a conversation with this student journalist I was talking to yesterday and uh and you know, we sort of mutually developed a clear sense of it. And what it, what it feels like is that you have, on the one hand, this incredible pressure to consume, uh, maybe the highest pressure to consume you know, ever experienced by a generation so far. And do you think that comes from social media? From social media, primarily, I think. So yes. that's being, being that's seen the new to be fact. consumed, being seen in various, yeah, okay. Yeah. So on the one hand, you have that. On the other hand, you have them... Uh, you know, have a generation that's witnessing dramatic impacts from mm. that consumption in terms of what's happening with the climate in particular, and experiencing a ton of pressure to be the generation that solves these problems. Mm. And then the third factor is just this general disillusionment within the generation that, uh, that the greening of consumption actually works. You know, they're, they're the ones hearing they grew up hearing recycle everything and now wow, they're yeah, hearing, yeah. you know, half the stuff's not getting recycled. And even when mm. it does, it's not, it's not having much of an impact. You know, they're getting these sorts of messages. So though there's those three different factors at play, and I think they play out differently in every person. Some people mm. are probably just throwing up their hands and saying, well, what the hell? I'm just going to yeah. stay fashionable. Or some people are blocking out some of the information, but a lot of them, I think, are just living in this, in this, you know, somewhere within the tension between mm. those three, where they want to keep up uh, and stay fashionable amongst their peers, uh, but they also want to save the world. But how do you do that when mm -hmm. even greening these products uh, doesn't seem to be all that effective? Yeah. I mean, this isn't, we're not laying this all at the door of, you know, young people. 
God no. <laughs> Everybody has, um, you know, the 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 baby boomers get their, you know, get um, slated, and uh, I don't even know what generation I am. But you know, I think we're all guilty of this, um, you know, to a, to a greater or lesser extent. Why does buying stuff feel so good? Like, you know, I I'm I'm someone who's really aware and conscious of what I'm buying and trying to reduce and trying to bring my kids up so that they are you know less materialistic and I think I'm basically failing at that like when I you know um what is it about getting acquiring stuff that does something to us you know it, it we get it when you know kids at Christmas and birthdays and things like that but there's that sort of inner toddler in all of us I think isn't there and wanting to acquire stuff all the time is it a like some deep-rooted psychological thing or is it just as that's what we've grown up with I think it's a bit of both. I mean, what we've, what we've ended up with, I think, is a system that has very sophisticated mechanisms for delivering consumption to us and marketing consumption to us. And we've developed really sophisticated ways of using consumption to do everything, like to, oh. do, to do absolutely everything. And so, um, you know, with each purchase, uh, the purchases, of course, in just the most rudimentary way, it is that little pleasure button, that little pleasure hit, the you know the dopamine hit that people mm-hmm. talk about, and and you know when people make the argument that consuming is an addiction, I think that's what they're talking about is that you get addicted to this these you know lineup, this endless lineup of small pleasures that mm-hmm. is kind of a, a facsimile of happiness because yes. it's you know if you line up enough things, then you do feel lots and lots of little hits of joy, but yes. Um, and you hardly even have time to feel the disappointment because you've moved on to getting another thing. <laughs> but at the same time, I mean, I think a lot of those purchases are actually a little bit more meaningful than that. And I think some of the satisfaction comes from that sense that you're keeping pace, um, keeping up with the Joneses in the classic term. Um, some of it comes from the feeling that you're, you're getting uh, ever better at expressing who you are oh. to the people around you that matter to you. You, you know, sometimes you're you're finding that perfect gift. There are so many different things that we do with consumption that there are so many different ways that it can that it can um, that it can feel meaningful. Oh. I, you know, and I, have you got kids? I don't know. Okay, I mean, my kids are thirteen and and ten, and we're coming up to Christmas, and it's really hard to push back against these kind of almost societal and social norms and and they you know we can have a really rational conversation and they will understand the idea that they've already got enough and you know that there's um but you know if, if they got nothing on they're still going to be really disappointed or we've just literally <laughs> had tea and I sat at the um I sat at the table and and um within their classes they're doing like a secret santa type thing and with the diff, you know varying budgets and things like that and I and I and I said oh I've thought of this too late for this year I said but next year you know, we could suggest to school that instead of everybody, you know, doing a secret Santa to buy a present for somebody in your class, you could do a charitable donation a bit like, um, but, you know, so that it's a, a football for a child in wherever, or, you know, you've paid for a teacher in wherever, and, and everybody stands up and reads out their thing. And my son was just like, don't make me suggest that, mommy. Don't make me <laughs> and I was like, you know, this could be, um, you could raise thousands of pounds really easily for a variety of different charities, but none of them are going to want to do that. Yeah, it's weird, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it isn't. It isn't, I guess, because it's 
It's just like you said. I mean, what we're pushing against is a whole society that is structured around this. And these are the core, the core value set of, of a consumer society uh, are centered on uh, income and possessions and social status. And the social status is anchored to income and possessions. So it's uh, when, when those are the measures of meaning in a society, and those are the, the markers and the signals that we use, then, um, you know, we're just not ready to, to say like, oh, I, I can wave a, a certificate saying I gave a, <laughs> I gave a donation. Uh, if other people are like, well, who cares? You know, yeah. I got cool stuff. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the, the thing you got doesn't mean that much in yeah. our society. And the thing I have, you know, is a very clear marker of uh, how much people appreciate me or, mm. you know, how much uh, the people who know me can afford to give me. Mm. This really is why, I mean, to me, individual and household level engagement with this issue is important, but it's unlikely to ever be enough. I mean, we mm. really have to, we got to get our hands in the system and tinker with it so that it, you know, the whole society shifts towards a lower level of consumption and a different set of values associated with that. So th- those values, and this is, you know, probably a bit of a chicken and an egg question. So my perception is those haven't always been society's values and whether it was post Second World War or at what point did did those values start to shift to become around stuff and identity and, and uh, income? Probably mainly after World War II. I mean, mm. materialist values and consumeristic kind of values are the values that, that are grounded in those uh, or that form the foundation of those, I should say. Those values have always been within us. Mm. Um, materialism serves certain useful purposes. I mean, it's, you know, as psychologists explained it to me, I mean, you, you do need something to motivate you to to get up and kind of make your way in the world. Yeah, yeah. Um, you do need some kind of value set that that urges you to to maintain some kind of dignified place in society. Mm-hmm. Um, these are valuable contributions that materialistic values can do for you. It's just that one of the you know, as Tim Casser, who's studied materialism probably longer than anybody, as he put it to me, is just the problem is those values uh, aren't there to make you happy. They're there to to make you insecure. They're there to make you feel like you have to get up and make your way in the world. <laughs> um, they're there to make you feel like you need to go out and and uh, ascertain your 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 status position in society. Those things aren't keyed to make you happy. And unfortunately, we've ended up putting a really extraordinary amount of emphasis mm. on that particular set of values. And I think we've evolved in that direction because it's proved to be so uh, powerful a lever to creating economic wealth uh, for those who benefit from that. <laughs> so that was going to be my chicken and egg thing with, you know, did consumption kind of drive these values or did these values, do you know, which, which came first? Was it sort of, were we manipulated to, to develop these values? That, that sounds very um, uh, sinister, but I guess actually it probably is quite sinister. You know, have, have we been, have our values been manipulated by, society. They sure have. But I mean, I think it's, it's best probably to think of these things as feedback loops. Like mm. when I looked at planned obsolescence or designing products so that they're made to break, 
that seems very sinister, right? Mm. But then when I went back and looked at one of the very earliest examples of that, which was the incandescent light bulb. Uh, so at one point in time, incandescent light bulbs were being made that could burn for a very, you know, for very long spans of time. And uh, a bunch of light bulb makers sat down and said, uh, this doesn't work for us economically, because then people buy these long lasting bulbs, and they never buy any more light bulbs. So they agreed on a 1000 hour average um, lifespan for the bulbs they were making. That seems really sinister. But at the time, uh, there was a, a widespread public conversation around this whole idea, because they weren't worried at that point about the oh. environmental consequences. They weren't concerned with the idea that global resources were finite. And they thought, well, why would we make products last when it generates so much economic activity oh. if they don't? Um, so the roots of it aren't necessarily as sinister as we might imagine. But at this point, you know, we know it's a sinister. <laughs> we, yeah. we know that there are serious impacts to planned obsolescence. And yet, uh, you know, at this point, it's like, we're so dependent on that model that, oh. of course, we keep reiterating it. But, you know, maybe today's corporations could argue that, and, and in fact, this seems to be what they do argue, they argue that we now can't escape it because we require, uh, we require constant growth and consumption to make the economies grow, and we cannot allow the economies to stop growing. Oh. Uh, so that defense is still kind of in place, but it's feeling weaker and weaker because the consequences of planned obsolescence are so extreme and that's so obvious to us now. Mm. Because, you know, I was sort of thinking, well, God, how do we change the, the, the societal values that we have? But it's been mm. done. It's been done in the last hundred years. So we must be done in the last 20 years. I mean, <laughs> we must be able to do it the other way, must we? But is that being too simplistic? I don't think it is. No, I think that's exactly right. I mean, just in the last 20 years, we've seen this really dramatic shift around sustainability, right? I mean, 20 years ago, companies didn't feel particular obligation to oh. publicly demonstrate that they were making their products more sustainable in this way and that way. 20 years ago, individuals didn't feel like oh. they needed to signal to anybody else that they were living a more sustainable life. Both those things are common and widespread now. So we've seen this, this really dramatic change. And we've seen actual progress. I mean, renewable, there's vastly more renewable energy in the world than there was 20 years ago. Uh, a lot of products are radically more energy efficient than they were in the past or more biodegradable or, you know, the list of things that we can get that are green now is, is extraordinary. So that represents a pattern of change that's exciting. It just happened to be moving in the wrong direction in a lot of ways. <laughs> um, but I mean, my belief is that we can move towards a reduction in consumption along much the same lines. I mean, oh. it requires individuals starting to, to embrace that idea and starting to um, build that into their lifestyles, others engaging with it as activists, others uh, you know, changing their business practices, putting pressure on businesses to oh. change their practices, putting pressure on governments to make concrete changes that, for example, would encourage the production of durable products over disposable products, mm. all of these kinds of things that incrementally recreate society. Now, I'm sure you get this a lot. And I got it, um, you know, during our year buying nothing new. And I get it, you know, if I talk to people about fast fashion and things like that, if we start, let's take particularly fashion, if, if several people have said this to me, and I'm sure they said it to you, if I don't buy it, 
then those people won't have a job. Right. And, you know, um, and, and, if, and if we don't consume, the economy will collapse. And, uh, and uh, yeah, I, I, I hope you have a really articulate, eloquent answer for that because I never do. <laughs> <laughs> well, my first answer is always that it always strikes me as so extraordinary how much we care about the working conditions and wages of people overseas the moment that you say, maybe, maybe you should buy less. Yeah, because um, you don't get the stuff points. when you're there getting your haul of, yeah. <laughs> no, we just, I mean, generally we've allowed like, you know, for example, the wages of uh, Bangladeshi garment workers are low, not only globally, but within Bangladesh. Mm. Um, wages have been driven down by this industry. And yet, if you suggest to people, perhaps we could buy more clothes, they're like, but what about the poor Bangladeshi oh, workers oh. who make those clothes? about whom you know we gave not a whit until this proposal oh. of reducing consumption is raised um but i mean in the book i spoke to the ceo yeah, of a bangladeshi really clothing factory yeah. and i went to him specifically because i thought i need somebody who's going to challenge my position i'm going yeah. to contact uh, a ceo of a factory that produces the garments and i expected that he was going to say no look the West needs to keep consuming to, mm. to keep employing my people. And in fact, he said the opposite. He said, look, um, fast fashion has been uh, so damaging to my country that it would be better to go through a painful transition to a more uh, sustainable industry, environmentally sustainable and sustainable in terms of paying living wages to people. Um, it'd be better to go through that transition than to continue down the path, the path of fast fashion. And he was passionate about it. And the part that uh, struck me the most about his, his uh, position on this is that they find fast fashion um, humiliating in mm. a sense. Uh, they know that they are making these products that go out and, as you just pointed out, might be given away free to mm, consumers. Mm or will be sold so for value. Yeah. There are, yeah, they're so little valued by those of us who are consuming the goods mm. that um, it's like we are robbing their work of dignity. Yeah. Well, there's probably these women who are, you know, leaving their children at home on their own or, you know, working extra hours for us to just buy something once or not even wear it or throw it. Like that's horrific, isn't it? Yeah, it's horrendous. And I mean, uh, I don't think it's that difficult to understand either. I mean, we would all like to think that our con contribution was valued in some mm. way. But, you know, in a sense, we're asking people to produce our garbage and, mm. and then treating it that way, yeah. which is understandably not the best feeling yeah. on, the other side of the, on the other side of the system. So it re that, that really struck me that, you know, they, they know, they know mm. how, how little we value the goods that they produce. And it comes at a terrible cost yeah. to their to their country in terms of uh, the environment. And of course, you know, again, they are aware that it's not their consumption that's yeah. driving climate change. And yet, a country like Bangladesh is right at the forefront oh, of the consequences yeah. of of climate change. So, this isn't lost on the people who are who are working there. And and as I say, a transition you don't want to thrust a twenty five percent drop in in oh, Western. Yeah consumption on the world overnight, as I do in my book, that does play out like a disaster movie, oh. but we can move in that direction in a, in a kind of controlled descent, as I like to call it. Yeah. If we all, and, and you talk about this in the book, the idea, and I think you talk about paying two cents extra per garment, and that would be enough for them to then be paying these um, people a living wage, 
or for them to to be able to actually be producing less and working shorter hours and and all those like we we actually had there was a white paper I think here in the UK um that looked into fast fashion and one of the recommendations was to increase the price of every garment by a penny and the mm. government turned it down right <laughs> a rounding error yeah. it's uh I mean Canada doesn't even have pennies anymore so yeah. Um, you know, you can increase the pro- price of something by two cents and it doesn't change the price of the product. <laughs> wow. so, yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, that really shocked me when I, when I asked, uh, this, this Bangladeshi clothing CEO, you know, what kind of, you know, what, what kind of price increase would be meaningful? And he said, mm. two cents. I was basically struck dumb in the phone yeah. call, uh, that that would be enough to make a significant difference to people's paychecks. And as you said, a significant opportunity to shift from producing more and more to producing less and better. Mm. If two cents is all we need to get started in that direction, then um, I say, let's do that tomorrow. <laughs> and, and that's not lifting, you know, there's, there, there are arguments sometimes for fast fashion is, you know, there are people for whom this is the, the only new clothing that they can afford. And, but actually, you also make the point that spending on, um, household spending on clothing has reduced hugely um, from something like 15, am I right? 15% to 5% or something. Yeah. Something around there. It's, uh, yeah, it's, I, I haven't seen the evidence yet that you, that an increase in two cents, uh, to, no, to garments would, would drive anybody out of the market. No, no, no. That's yeah. 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 And it is a, I mean, it is an interesting thing because perhaps there are some people for whom at this point, um, buying fast fashion is the only path forward. I mean, that's a question of social security and social mm, welfare that, mm. that has, you know, much bigger, there are much bigger issues at play there than, um, than, than I'm dealing with in the book. But what I think when, when I think about this, I think back to the fact that about 20 years ago, uh, I mean, 20 years ago, clothing lasted at least twice as long as it does today. So 20 years ago, everyone in every walk of life was buying more durable clothing. We've been there before. Surely we can go there again. Surely there is an economic means to make it happen. Deprived of clothes, like two thousand year two thousand, showing my age. I was I was university, so you know I wasn't deprived of clothes. I can't get over how much things have changed without feeling like they've changed. Does Mm -hmm. that make sense? No, exactly. I mean, and I think that's like, as you know, one of the places I went to for this book was to Ecuador because. Uh, Ecuador has has a, a level of consumption such that if we all, everyone on Earth, lived like the average Ecuadorian, then we'd be able to we'd be able to do that with the mm. resources available mm-hmm. on on just this one planet. And yeah. of course, that's not true of many of the wealthy Western countries. And people say, "Well, what does that look like?" And I'm, it's hard to express because it just kind of looks like it looks normal. Yeah. <laughs> it's just you know, a little less of everything. Right. Yes. Um, but it doesn't, it doesn't look unrecognizable. It's mm. certainly not a trip back to the stone age. Yeah. They're not all living in, you know, yurts and off grid and making their own clothes. And, you know, as you say, it, it looks no, relatively it's, normal. It's normal. It's like it's the like 80s a, probably. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, that's the thing is it looks like anyone, certainly anybody who lived between the fifties and eighties uh, would, would find a lot of it perfectly recognizable. Yeah. But even if you think up to the two thousands, I mean, in the late 1990s, it was still the case with flying, for example, that there was only a very small number mm. of people around the world who flew uh, a lot. 
you know, hardly anybody was flying internationally, mm. um, you know, long distance international flights multiple times a year if they weren't a, if they weren't like a political mm. leader yeah, or yeah, the yeah. Pope or, you know, maybe yeah. uh, U2, mm. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> you know, Bono probably flew a lot back then. But I mean, it, it was a very limited number of mm. people. And now it's commonplace. Yeah. Yeah. So it absolutely is everything, isn't it? So is capitalism the problem? Do we need another economic model? Oh, that's a big question. But um, (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I think that aspects of capitalism have been have become too, uh, too dominant. And again, probably all systems contain some element of capitalism oh. and it's probably healthy. There's probably a lot of things that capitalism can do reasonably well that other approaches don't do as well. But um, certainly capitalism's emphasis on growth oh. has been very damaging. And this particular kind of capitalism that functions with, uh, well, that depends, that absolutely depends on consumption to sustain itself is uh, impossible to Mm. proceed with. I mean, in the book, I'd say that we have a dilemma. You know, the planet seems to need us to stop consuming so much. The economy needs us to consume more and more. But in fact, by the end of the book, you know, I no longer feel it's a dilemma. We cannot proceed Mm. (laughs) with consuming more and more in perpetuity. We can't have a model where all of us who are already over-consuming must continue to consume more. And so must every other person on earth. I mean, it's not rocket science. A a preschooler can get that, can't they? That that there is no, we cannot sustain infinite growth on a on a finite, you know, planet with boundaries, with with resource boundaries and and physical boundaries and all those kinds of things. It's it's but what's the alternative? I mean, I've heard people talking about well-being, you know, trying to shift towards a well-being economy. Um, Kate Raybus done a lot of work around this idea of sort of donut economics and things like that. Mm-hmm. What's the answer? <laughs> where, where I'm settling on this is, I don't know. I don't know mm. what the answer is. I don't think we can know. I mean, how long did it take to create consumer capitalism? Yeah, it took, yeah. You know, uh, at a minimum, 250 years. Um, it was I don't think we knew. <laughs> no, uh, but I mean, I don't think that we. I don't think we knew starting down that path where we we're going to end it up. It wasn't intent. We weren't intentionally creating that, were we? But now we 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 need to intentionally create something better. Yeah, and I think my what I hope people. One thing that I hope people take away from this book is that we shouldn't shy away from the idea that we can try something different. Mm. I think, for example, when I sit down with Peter Victor, who's a an economist in Toronto who has built this quite sophisticated model of the Canadian economy oh. on his laptop. You know, we sat down and punched in a 25% overnight drop in the Canadian economy into his computer, and it was a total disaster, uncontrollable disaster. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but then, you know, Peter Victor said, well, let's do a smaller one. Let's do, a, I think he said 4%. And at 4%, uh, he was able to modulate it. He was able to make changes like shortening the work week. You're changing taxes so that the wealth that was produced by the this sort of slower Canadian economy was being spread oh. more fairly. He was able to control, you know, the potentially terrible consequences of winding the the economy down a little bit. And I mean, that's in a model that's not accounting for oh. all the different, all the millions of different ways that that we adapt and change, as we saw in the pandemic. I mean, the oh, pandemic oh. was 
among many other things, a really powerful lesson in just how adaptable we are and society is and business is. And um, so, you know, I really feel like the, the arguments that we can't even, um, that we can't even start to think Mm. about um, slowing down the consumer economy are getting weaker all the time. And we can just start to do it. We can just start to try some things and see where we evolve. Uh, and you know, certainly you see businesses going in this direction. They are confident enough to believe that, um, that, that some other approach is, that we can evolve towards some other approach. So you see these companies like Patagonia and uh, Levi's, which was mm, you know, really an important one since it's such a globally recognizable brand, saying, we're going to turn away from the business model of sheer volume and move towards producing more durable products, making the sale of new products a smaller part of our overall model, um, and building in things like secondhand sales, repair and maintenance. Mm. So you see people who, who think, well, whether or not the system can handle it, we're going to move in this direction and mm. see what happens. And I think more of us can be doing that. And I think that's you know one of the arguments against uh, trying to slow down the economy or consume less is is, is the jobs argument, isn't it? And and but I was I was trying to say this in a very again inarticulate way to somebody um, the other day. The the way I think about it is it's not that there will be necessarily fewer jobs. There will be different jobs. So instead of jobs in manufacture, there will be jobs in repair. Instead of jobs in fossil fuels, there'll be jobs in green energy and things like that. And and so that's where it becomes about the, you know this just transition and supporting people to develop new skills and all those kinds of things. So it doesn't necessarily, and actually I think all the, all the research that's been done around things like green new deal and stuff actually suggests that there will be more green jobs than there are, I don't know what we call them jobs that we're talking about in terms of um, fossil fuels and, and uh, consumption and things like that. Is that broadly right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think, I think uh, if you start to move in this direction then it does become a slower, uh, a slower churning or a, a shrinking economy, which is possible. I think if you if you reduce consumption, you reduce production. Mm. Uh, if you reduce production, you reduce labor. Then it becomes more important, even more important, that you that you make sure that opportunities to participate in the economy are probably more evenly spread than they are today, and also that the wealth that's produced by that economy, it's even more important that we make sure that that's being distributed mm. probably more fairly than it is today. But then we, we often forget that, like, what are jobs for? They're for producing the wealth necessary to consume. If we're yeah. consuming less, then we, do, we don't have to concern ourselves quite as much with this question of employment. And, you know, assuming that, that we can maintain some kind of equity in terms of the opportunities that are necessary in, in this alternative uh, form of economy, then we can look at what there is to gain. And the big one is time. Oh. <laughs> so if we are shortening the workday, if we are shortening the work week, uh, if we are consuming less, uh, then suddenly we have this incredible gift of time that so many people in modern life say they don't have enough oh. of. So again, you know, there's this tendency to focus on, well, you know, we won't all have jobs. We won't all have full-time jobs. Well, you know, that, that won't be as big an issue if we're consuming oh. less. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Trying to remember that. Yeah. I mean, certainly if you look at people who practice voluntary simplicity, the, yes. you know, the longtime downshifters and voluntary simplicity practitioners that I talked to for this book, who've been at it for decades. One of the things, one of the really 
unexpected things that came out of that is that they feel much more liberty around their relationship with work than the rest of us do. They're, you know, they're more likely to leave a bad job because they're like, well, I don't, I don't need this job as much as a lot of people do because I'm not consuming as many things. So I'm not as dependent on this income. And so they're actually more likely to, you know, uh, get out of bad works positions to work uh, part time, mm. um, and to actually you know, lay claim to the fruits of that, which yeah. is more leisure time. Yeah, we're all. I mean, there's so many sort of quotes, aren't there, about you know, sort of working all the hours to buy all the things you need to impress people you don't know and all that kind yeah. of thing. But I mean, this feels like an unstoppable juggernaut. How do we? How do I? How do people sat listening at home? How do we start to slow this thing down and turn it round? Yeah, I, it's interesting to me that that people see it as an unstoppable juggernaut. I guess uh, I guess that's the process of writing, you know, three hundred pages on a, on a thing is that you start to see the, the chinks in the armor. I mean, to me, it's just this question of like, what are the concrete steps, concrete achievable steps that we could take now mm. uh, that might begin to to turn this turn this around. I look at things like right to repair legislation. Mm. You know, that's that's a really simple simple move in this direction. So if you are mandating uh, more companies to make more of their products repairable, then what does that do? Um, you know, it 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 creates more durable products. That you know, means we're going to have to buy fewer of those products across our lifetime because we can get them repaired. It means that the repair sector is going to start to become a more important part of the economy, as opposed to the, you know, the, the oh. part of the economy that's just selling us new things all the time. So that's like it's a small, concrete step that actually has pretty significant implications. Oh. And there's a long list of things like that that we can do. Another sort of more macroscopic uh, example would be dealing with inequality. Inequality is a powerful driver of consumerism, mm-hmm. and it does it in two ways. One is just the keeping up with the Joneses effect. Mm-hmm. This this idea that if you you know see people with radically more uh, consumer goods and opportunities than you have, then you feel like you're losing your dignified mm-hmm. place in society, and you want to you want to keep up. And that's reasonable. The other thing is if you see people who just have a, a much greater kind of material abundance than you have, it makes people feel unsafe. It makes people feel literally insecure and they will buy things to create a buffer between themselves and, and poverty. It's a psychological yeah. uh, trigger for us. We know how to deal with inequality. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's not, a, it's not, a, it's not a, some kind of divine mystery. Mm. Um, you know, through much of the 20th century, we had much higher taxes on the wealthy than we do today. And there are all kinds of other steps that we can take to reduce inequality. Doing it would have a meaningful impact on how much pressure we feel to consume. So there are these concrete things we can do. It's not, uh, it's not just a question of you know, all of us changing our behavior at home oh. and, and hoping for the best. There, there's a system that we can tinker with oh. and we can start moving in this direction. And I think you talk about this in the book. The diff- some of the difficulty is we've talked about this conspicuous consumption we've talked about the the way social media drives this because it's very visible consumption when you're not buying something that's not visible there's no it's, it's not virtue signaling but there's no you know you can have your coffee cup there and that's sending out the signal I'm a, I'm a good green person do you know when you 
um, when you don't have that coffee cup or you're, it's a very difficult thing to share. I don't know. Does it mm-hmm. does that make sense? <laughs> yeah, it does. And, um, and there's this interesting research on that where, you know, I looked at it in the book where how a person, like suppose a person's wearing an old beaten up jacket. Mm. What we know about why they're wearing the jacket matters a lot in terms mm. of how it's interpreted. So uh, if we don't know that the person's deliberately wearing their old jacket because it's important to them to signal to the world that they're not consuming so much, then uh, we might just think, well, that person's poor and not succeeding in society yes. and, uh, and kind of judge them at that, in that way uh, or pity them perhaps in that way. But if we know it, if we know a person is saying is deliberately mm. doing that, then we then oftentimes we admire that. Uh, so I mean, it, it is almost as though we need to to start to kind of reinvent a, a new aesthetic. Well, that's like um, I think that might be some of why, like visible mending. I don't know if you if you came across that's this. That's right. It's, you know, it's it's so popular, and I I had exactly the same thing when when we were doing our year buying nothing new. Um, the the kids were really little, and they were going through their jeans. You know, lots of holes in lots of um, pairs of jeans and I had to learn to patch these jeans and I and I remember thinking oh my god I'm going to be judged they're going to go to nursery and I'm going to be and they're going to think we're really poor or they're going to you know we're going to be really judged on this and they're going to call social services and you know and, <laughs> where, and I really needed to get my and that sounds ridiculous but I really needed to get my head around that that it was okay and that nobody was going to judge me and that it was and so the the sort of the, the beauty I think of visible mending and doing it in a very as a statement is a kind of yes, this, you know, you, you are wearing it as a statement, aren't you? And I had a pair of jeans that were, you know, basically the whole leg was various different patches and darns and things like that. Brilliant conversation starter. Everybody always mm-hmm. came up and asked me about them and I, and I was really proud of them. And I guess that's because I'm letting people know that I've done that deliberately. That's right. Um, and I think, you know, if you get enough people starting to do that, and I think this is where particularly young people have a real opportunity because, you know, young people can very obviously be wearing thrifted clothes or mm. patched clothes or mended clothes, as you say. And, you know, they can gather up into, into gangs on social media mm. and, and duke it out with the clothing hall people and try to create a new kind of cool around it. Well, right? there, there was a thing, I don't know if it's still going, like um, the sort of hashtag alternative. So instead of a, a mm. hall, it was this alternative and it was you know, people coming and, and sharing their secondhand finds or their, you know, showcasing a mend that they've done and things like that. And as you say, it's trying to make it aspirational, isn't it, against everything that we're being, all the messages we're being thrown at by everyone else. Yeah. And then, of course, it's really dangerous, too, because, uh, you know, you may remember, I certainly do, um, the grunge clothing mm. movement in the 1990s, which which emerged out of, it emerged out of the the serious recessions that were happening around the world at that time and and young people saying well you know i can't afford all these clothes and uh, i want to react against the 80s anyway so you know <laughs> we're going to buy things at, at, at thrift stores and charity shops and um and we're going to make our fashion around that but then it wasn't long before brands were selling those kinds of clothes right back at us and i can very much see the possibility that that yeah, would happen yeah, again yeah. it's a dangerous game but it's still probably an important one at this point for people to um, to you know start to create a little bit different messaging with mm. their with their outward appearance, but really, I mean, with this topic, you know, the most essential thing that can happen right now is just these kinds of conversations. Mm. I mean, it's a, 
it's it's just so important that anyone is out there, you know, uttering the idea that consumption itself might be a problem, and that um, maybe we can't just deal with overconsumerism by greening it. Mm. Just having more and more people starting to talk about it and make arguments uh, yes. in its favor is probably the most essential thing right now. Yeah, and uh, you know, the more I speak to different people and the more I read and things, it, it, these conversations around you know, oh gosh, the weather's weird, isn't it? Well, yes, that's because it's climate. And, you know, all of it all comes down to conversations and to being um, sometimes taking a big deep breath and being brave enough to kind of dive into those conversations when, mm-hmm. um, you know, sometimes if you're like me and you just want to keep the peace and avoid conflict and all those sorts of things. There are some really <laughs> nice, gentle ways of doing it, aren't there? And I think yeah. the more we can normalise things like, so, you know, events like repair cafes, events like clothes swaps, those We'd, there's been a um, you know quite a lot on social media here in the UK about Christmas around Christmas jumper swaps and things like that. They're all yes, they're all sort of tinkering around the edges, but they're all just starting to send out these slightly different messages, aren't they? And I think that's really mm-hmm. really important that when we see them, we try and sort of amplify them whenever we can. Yeah, it's it's frustrating for those of us who are you know thinking like we need radical change tomorrow, mm. but but it's uh, it's it is the case that ideas kind of have to move towards the center of the public discourse or you know certainly towards the center of our conversations around oh. sustainability and right now the idea of reducing consumption is way out on the periphery yeah. um, i'm just being honest with myself most of all as somebody who has written a book on it i mean i understand that i'm speaking from the periphery on this topic and and but but you know the work that i hope i'm doing is advancing it a little bit closer to the to the center and uh, the more people that uh, that help push it in that direction, mm. the better at this yeah. point. That's the stage we're at with this subject right now. How hopeful do you feel that we can turn this around? Mm. Um, I kind of in divide time. my hope into two. Uh, on the one hand, I don't see I don't see a lot of uh, optimistic signals <laughs> in global society right now. So in that sense, I'm I'm you know perhaps deeply pessimistic. I'm hopeful in the sense that I think there is a clear path to change and it's achievable and we can do it. You know, I I genuinely believe that there, that we, that we can create an, uh, an economy that is an alternative to perpetually a perpetually growing consumption driven economy. Uh, In that sense, I'm very hopeful. Yeah. It's there. We need, I mean, it's like everything, isn't it? I guess we need the political, uh, political will, but that will also come from the social will to then put the pressure on the politicians and and all that kind of thing. So I think, as you say, those conversations are so important, and we we've really got to play our role there, haven't we? Yeah, I'm, where I've ended up from this book is starting out saying like we genuinely have a dilemma here. We have mm. a planet that seems to need us to stop consuming. Yes. We have an economy that seems us to, to seems to need us to keep consuming. It's it's a genuine dilemma. Mm. Um, by the time I finished this book, I, you know, I no longer thought it was a dilemma. I think, I think we can solve it. Uh, oh. I'm convinced of that. That aspect I'm hopeful about. But as I say, as I survey uh, COP26 and uh, a lot of the other uh, ways that we're you know, attempting to address the very serious environmental crises that we're facing, you know, I'm not seeing, I'm not clean, seeing any clear signals yet that we're moving in a, in a truly fruitful direction. So mm. we've, I've got uh, optimism and pessimism 
in suspension. <laughs> I think that's the same for anyone <laughs> who's working in the, in the climate and environment, isn't it? <laughs> mm-hmm. um, thank you. So I could honestly chat to you for hours about this. It's absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much. For anyone who wants to buy the book, it, um, this always feels really wrong. Do you get this as well? Now, we're going to talk about not buying and we're going to tell you to buy a book. <laughs> the day the world stops dropping, you can get it from your library, your um how ending consumerism gives us a better life and a greener world and i will post all the links um to it now i would absolutely recommend it it's very you know it's very readable as well which i think sometimes a lot of um climatey type books tend not to be but it's it's really readable and it's so interesting and and it is guaranteed to get everybody thinking i think i would just i just wish boris johnson would read it and you know various <laughs> somebody can buy him a copy yes yeah, yeah that's yeah. money well spent i think flooding with them at, at 10 downing street um, thank you so much for your time. You're absolutely superstar. Thank you for writing the book. Thank you for starting the conversation and, and continuing the conversation. And um, yeah, good luck with it all. Thanks so much. My pleasure. You've been listening to Sustainable-ish, you wonderful sack of loveliness, with me, Jen Gale. Hopefully we've fired some neurons and we've got the old grey matter thinking about what changes you can make in your life this week to live that little bit more sustainably. Do let me know what that is. I love to hear about the changes that people are making, big or small, every single one counts. If you've enjoyed the show, and I hope you have, do hop over to iTunes to leave a comment or a review and then the bots at iTunes will cotton on to just how awesome it is and it will show up in more people's feeds. Or at least I think that's how it works. Thanks so much for listening. I will catch you next time. Bye.